We are going back once more to the Sermon on the Mount, which, as I have explained to you, I believe is nothing more than what is called elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel of the Kingdom. Matthew 7, we'll start reading in verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity." Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. The king here has been proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom. He has explained in the Beatitudes the subjects of this kingdom, those who are in it, what they look like, not their physical features, but their spiritual features. They're meek, they're humble, they're poor in spirit, they mourn over their sin, they hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those are the characteristics of those who shall populate his kingdom. He has, for the last few chapters, been laying down, as it were, the rule of his kingdom. Right from the king himself comes the rule that is to govern His kingdom. It involves our righteousness, one towards another, as we saw in chapter 5. It involves the matter of the fact that we're to be holy inside and out, not just in right actions, but right motives, a right heart, as well as right conduct. It involves our relationship to our God, that we're not hypocrites, that we do not worship God in a way that is mocking His character as it is revealed in His Word. And then we close the sermon, and I guess every good sermon ought to contain all of these elements, and mine seldom contain them all, you understand. A lot of times we run out of time. I have good intentions. We don't ever get there. But all good sermons ought to contain things like exhortation, and certainly the Sermon on the Mount does. It ought to contain the encouragement to believe God's promises. And we certainly find those here, ask and it shall be given unto you, for instance. But every good sermon ought to also end with a warning. And so does this one. There are things that are less pleasant for a preacher preacher to preach than other things. But if we are to be faithful to the Word of God, we must not only admit that there are some wonderful promises that are made to sinners and a wondrous offer of grace to be found in Jesus Christ, there are also very solemn warnings for us not to think we are something when we are nothing, not to think that we have something when we really don't. And so we end this Sermon on the Mount, or I should say our Lord ends it, by giving us a very solemn warning about false things, three false things in verses 15 through 20, 
false teachers. In verses 21 through 23, false professions. And in verses 24 through 27, false foundations. He is basically giving us a word to the wise. And that word is simply this. Everything that glitters is not gold. There is the fake, the phony, the false, as well as the true. And there is a duty incumbent upon each of us who names the name of Christ that we be discerning between that which is true and that which is false, between that which is good and that which is evil, even that which comes to us in the name of Jesus Christ. We just saw that there are many who walk the Broadway to destruction in verses 13 and 14. Few that walk the way to life. We must be discerning. All right, first of all, let us look at these false teachers or false prophets as they're called in verse 15. In the Old Testament age, we had the age of the prophets. And I think many of us sometimes have a very idealistic, romantic view of what it would have been like to have lived back in that age. We say, wouldn't life have been so simple? And, you know, everything was just sort of written out for you, wasn't it? You're just supposed to do this on this day, go here, go to the temple, offer these sacrifices, and listen to the prophet. He's God's man. You go find him and you listen to him. Well, the only problem was, is that for every true prophet of God, there were multitudes of false prophets in the Old Testament age. I'll give you just a couple of examples. You remember when... King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat were going to go up and fight against the Syrians. And oh, uh, Jehoshaphat wanted to hear from the prophets. What did they have to say? And Ahab says, well, I've got these 400 prophets here, and they're all prophesying that we go up to Ramoth Gilead and we'll succeed and we'll win the battle up there. And Jehoshaphat said, don't you have any others? Well, I've got this one guy. His name is Micaiah. And I don't like him very much because he never has anything good to say about me, but we'll go hear what he has to say. And you remember how Micaiah told him what was true, what was about to come up at Ramoth Gilead, that there he would meet his end, and surely he did. But notice in that case, there were 400 false prophets, one true prophet. When Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove upon Mount Carmel, that time when he called down fire from heaven to consume the offering, he was outnumbered 850 to 1. Do you understand how difficult it is because there's far more false that goes on in the name of Christianity and the name of Christ than there is true? Now, you might think that when we come to the days of the New Testament, all of that is going to change. Now we'll be rid of having to discern between true and false, between the good man and the bad man from the real spokesman for God and the pretended spokesman. You know, those days are in the past. That may have been the way it was in the Old Testament, but surely we'll not have to do that anymore. Well, I've got news for you. Turn to Second Peter chapter 2. At the end of chapter 1, Peter has just given you a wonderful depiction of prophecy, how these holy men of old spoke as they were moved. The word moved there in the Greek is to be carried away like a, uh, a chip of wood being carried by the water. These holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's the last verse of chapter 1. And then in Second Peter 2, verse 1, he says, But... These holy men, these true prophets were carried away, as it were, by the Holy Ghost as they spoke. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. The New Testament day will not be unlike the Old Testament day. Yes, God had His men. He had those who were proclaiming His word. And there were hundreds who were not. So shall it be in this New Testament age that just as there will be the true, there will be the false, who bring in, notice, privily will bring in among you damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And the rest of this chapter is a warning not to follow after these false teachers. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself warning us, there will be false prophets, beware of them, 
And they will come to you in sheep's clothing. Sheep's clothing. They will put on wool, as it were, when within, in reality, they are in fact ravening wolves. Now that always bothered me, having had some acquaintance with raising sheep in my early days, is why in the world would a wolf dress up like sheep? And obviously the wolf dresses up like sheep to infiltrate the sheep, to be able to get in their midst, to be able to penetrate the group, so to speak, in order that he may devour the sheep. Because you see, sheep eat sheep food. Wolves eat sheep. And so though they have the outward guise, the outward appearance, what's common in programming language today, they got the look and feel of a sheep. They are, in fact, within ravening wolves. Paul, in Corinth, dealt with false teachers. They complained about Paul. Says, you know, he doesn't look very apostle-like. He's really sort of a pitiful fella. Weak, puny, sick, beaten up. Everywhere he goes, they beat him up, lock him up, throw him in jail, hit him a few times. Paul is really sort of a despicable character. That was the... The baggage Paul was having laid at his feet. You know, he just doesn't look very apostle-like. Well, Paul had his labels for those false teachers. You know what he called them? False apostles, ministers of Satan. They're the devil's ministers. He says, it's no wonder that they come to you as ministers of light, for even Satan himself appears as an angel of light. So his ministers come in the same guise. They don't come. In other words, the false teacher does not come to you saying, Hi, the devil sent me to make sure you'd go to hell. I've got a message straight from the pit of hell, and I want you to believe it. It's nothing but an out-and-out lie. It denies the truth of God, but I've come to preach it to you so we can all go to hell together. That is not how the false prophet comes. He comes in sheep's clothing. Even as Satan himself appears as an angel of light, and his ministers come as ministers of light. Now, in some cases, these false prophets and teachers are nothing but modern flim-flam men. I mean, there's always been con men around in this world. And there, the church is no exception. We have our con men who come in the name of Christ. They know they're fake. They know they're phony. They're just putting something over on you, trying to fleece the sheep of Jesus Christ. Now, I can draw all sorts of illustrations of these things out of modern life, you understand. The world today, and especially the religious climate in which we live, furnishes us numerous illustrations. I'll just give you one. You remember about ten years ago, the fellow, I can't recall his name right now, but he pretended to have the gift of prophecy. And he would go into his meetings, and he would tell things about the people there that they thought only he, how could he know only they knew these things? You know, so-and-so's sister is sick, or so-and-so has this problem with his right arm, or whatever. And these people are just amazed. And then it was found out that these people, before going in the meeting, signed these little cards of what they would like him to pray for. And his wife was reading these to him through a microphone, and he had a receiver in his ear as she spoke to him about so-and-so in row number such-and-such. And And, uh, sure enough, they caught him on tape doing this. It's very interesting. It's nothing but a con man. I mean, he knows he doesn't have the gift of prophecy. He's just an out-and-out liar. So in some cases, the false prophet is truly false in that he knows himself that he's nothing but a liar, but he's trying to con the people of God. But most of the time, and this is the scary part, most of the time, the false teacher is absolutely sincere convinced that what he is saying is in fact the truth. And that's by far the most dangerous sort of false teacher. The one who is convinced himself, utterly deceived, thinking he is proclaiming truth when in fact it is an out and out lie. In some cases, the message of the false prophet out and out denies the word of the gospel. 
absolutely contradicts what God has said sometimes. But that's rare. Most of the time, the false prophet comes with a message that simply, well, let's use the biblical word, perverts. The word pervert means to twist something. It twists the truth. It puts his spin on the truth. It turns it into something that's not quite the gospel, even though it uses the language of the gospel. Just in this past week, I was trying to explain to someone, I believe it was on Tuesday morning in our Bible study, how out west, when we lived out there and worked among the Mormons, that the problem with dealing with Mormons is that your vocabulary is the same, but it has two different meanings. The word salvation means one thing to you, it means another thing to a Mormon. The word resurrection means one thing to you, it means another thing to a Mormon. In other words, you have the same vocabulary. It's not that Joseph Smith came along and utterly denied everything that was in the Bible. But he put his twist upon everything that was in the Bible. There is the perversion of truth, and that nine times out of ten is what we run into in our day. Now, Christ declares here that we are to know these false prophets and false teachers, these wolves in sheep's clothing, by their fruits. He gives us this little parable about the fact that good trees don't bring forth evil fruit. I mean, apple, y'all know what a bodark tree is? I have Bodark trees over here. Well, I grew up in Bodark. In fact, Bodark Creek was down behind our place, ran, ran through our farm. Good old Bodark Creek. And we had these Bodark apples, called them horse apples. Y'all, Dave, Wayne, y'all know what I'm talking about here. These big green things, they call them Bodark apples, and they'd fall. And the story I was always told growing up is it's poisonous. It'd kill you. I don't know. They may have just been telling me that because I was probably stupid enough to eat one. But anyway, I know they'd make you good and sick. These bodark trees, these bodark apples. Well, the point is, is a real apple tree doesn't bear bodark apples. And a bodark tree won't bear real apples. That's what Jesus is simply explaining. And that's, as we say, as obvious as the nose on the end of your face. You understand that what he's saying is, is that eventually the false prophet will be seen by the fruits that come out of his ministry. Now, that may be a multitude of things. Number one, the fruit of his ministry may be his doctrine, may be his teaching. You say, how do we tell a false teacher? One test the Scripture gives us is what comes out of the man's mouth. Does it agree with New Testament revelation? Early, I'll give you one example of this. Early in the church's history, there was an attempt to mingle Christianity, true Christianity, with Greek thought and Greek philosophy. And what originated was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism had a number of elements to it that's really too, too deep and varied to go into this morning. But one of the features of Gnosticism was a denial that Jesus was truly human, that he was really flesh. You see, in Greek thought, anything fleshly, anything tangible and concrete was de facto evil. So in other words, in the, under the guise of trying to maintain the purity and the holiness of Jesus Christ, they felt the only way they could do that is, was to deny the fact that he was really human. That he was really real. They said he was just a phantom. He was just an apparition. He just seemed to be real. And the only problem with that is, is that when, when he hung on that cross, then he just seemed to be suffering. And when he died, he just seemed to be dying. Do you understand how that one little feature undermines the entire gospel? Now, John writes, 1 John, apparently, as an antidote to this type of thinking. If you look at 1 John, the first chapter, he talks, that which our hands have handled, that which our ears have heard. In other words, don't tell me he just seemed to be real. I was there. I touched him. And then he goes into chapter 4 and he talks about these antichrists, these false teachers that have gone out into the world and they have a false message. This message, he says, is that Jesus is not come in the flesh. And wherever you hear that message, I don't care how wonderful the teacher looks to be, how, how marvelous he lives his life, if he teaches that Jesus is not come in the flesh, this is the spirit of antichrist. He's a false teacher. So you see, in some cases, the fruit that gives away the falseness of the teacher is the doctrine that he espouses. You with me? Okay. Another area 
where the false teacher is to be known by his fruits is what we would say the lifestyle. You see, in the first century, the early church had these prophets that floated from place to place. They'd minister in this place for a few days and then go down the road and minister here. In the Didache of the Twelve Apostles, this was an early document, one of the features of a test of a true prophet or not was if he came to you and asked for money, you're to kick him out on his ear. In other words, if he is using his prophetic gift to fleece the flock, to enrich himself, that was an automatic sign that the man was not genuine. If he's come to take and get rather than come to give, then kick him out. In other words, his life denied the very gospel that he supposedly was teaching. Of course, there were other kinds of false prophets, false teachers seen by the immorality, the evil, the wickedness that came out of their lives. And then a fourth test of the prophet is to look at his converts. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke said that wisdom is justified by her children. He was being criticized by the scribes and Pharisees for hobnobbing with these sinners. And Jesus says wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, let's look at the fruits of the ministry. And and immediately follows this wonderful story about Jesus eating in a Pharisee's home. And a woman comes in from the street, apparently a sinful woman, apparently a prostitute, who comes and as Jesus is laying there in the style where they would lay sort of on a divan with their elbows up on the table and his feet curled around behind him, she began to weep and to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and pour perfume over them. And Jesus begins to point out to this old self-righteous Pharisee, you see this woman? Her sins were many. But they've been forgiven and now she loves much. To whom little is forgiven, they love little. They love little. In other words, here is a sampling of the fruits that comes out of the ministry of Christ. This ministry, this gospel of grace. Here's what it produces. You see this woman with a horrid past who now has fallen in love with Christ. And anything she has is not good enough for him. Now, Phariseeism... You know what it produced? Made you mean as a snake. These Pharisees would have more mercy on a dog than they'd have on you if you was in trouble. Let you get in trouble on the Sabbath day, they'd pull a they'd pull a, a, a an ox out of a hole on the Sabbath day. They're not gonna pull you out. They had more mercy on animals than they had on people. When Jesus went to you remember heal that woman who had that infirmity bowed over for how many eighteen years? And he said, you would loose your ox on the Sabbath day. You won't let me loose her? And there are some brands of Christianity today that will make you as mean as a snake. True Christianity humbles, crushes. True Christianity makes you good. And I mean that in the good sense of the word. True Christianity, people that are saved by grace and grace alone and know they're saved by grace and grace alone, become gracious. People who realize the debt to mercy that they owe become merciful. People who have been saved out of misery and bondage are themselves desirous to be instruments of salvation to those round about them. Now, you may wonder why I'm so concerned about your conduct, how you act, what you do. It's because, folks, you will validate or invalidate my ministry. You're the proof of either its trueness or its falseness. So excuse me if I get carried away about things like this. 
Paul wrote to Corinth when they wanted a letter of recommendation for him. Can you imagine? Oh my. You have a hard time believing how bad things have gotten in the church at Corinth when they want Paul to bring letters of recommendation to him before he can come preach. When he's the one who founded the church in the first place, taught them the gospel in the first place, and he writes to them and says, Folks, you're our letter. The letter is written on your heart. Any commendation, any recommendation that I have, it's you folks are it. And in the same way, we who preach the gospel today, it is those who hear and those who heed, and that's why it's so important what comes out of our church. What spirit do we manifest? Do we come out of here looking like a bunch of scribes and Pharisees? Do we come out manifesting the spirit of James and John who are ready to call down fire from heaven on that village over there that wouldn't receive Jesus? What do we look like? Who do we act like? What do we manifest? That is the fruit that comes from a false ministry or a true ministry. Good fruit comes from a good tree. Evil fruit comes from an evil tree. Boy, I almost have to break this up into three parts, don't we? Well, let's go on to the second area. False profession. We've been talking about false ministries, so I've been preaching to myself up here. Now it's time to preach to you. False profession. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. We are met with the fact that there will be many Verse 22 says, many who will say, Lord, Lord, they will outwardly profess the name of Jesus Christ. Now, there's multitudes, you understand, that would not for a moment address Jesus as their Lord. But many will say, Lord, Lord, and will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There will be false converts among the truth. Just as there will be false teachers and false prophets among the true teachers and prophets, there will be false converts. Now, there are those ministries, and I use the word very loosely, that seem to produce nothing but false converts. We are some, I, you know, it's almost these citywide crusades and things like that have almost gone out of fashion in our day, out of vogue. But there was a time back 30 years ago when I first started preaching that that was the rage, and oftentimes, if you looked over the long haul, out of every hundred that would make some sort of profession of faith, some sort of decision to follow Christ, maybe 10%, and that's, that's optimistic, maybe 10% would ever follow Him as far as being aligned with a church of any sort, kind, or fashion, follow Him in baptism, in other words, maybe one out of ten, and I'm being very generous there. You think I'm exaggerating. Yes, I'm probably exaggerating all right. It's worse than that. But maybe one out of ten in the best of cases. Now, there's something wrong. That ought to make you question either the ministry, the message, or the methods, one or the other. But on the other hand, true ministries have always had their false converts. I mean, Philip down it. Samaria had Simon Magus in the bunch. False. Jesus had his Judas in the bunch. We're sort of being introduced to the fact that there will be the false among the truth. Remember the story about D.L. Moody in Chicago walking down the street when an old drunk came up and said, oh, Moody, I'm one of your converts. And he said, oh, I guess you are. You're certainly not one of the Lord's. That's the truth. <laughs> Is that in every case there will be the false among the truth. Now usually... When we think of a false convert, we think of the nominal, the spurious convert, the backslider, the one who for a few moments was with it, in there with us, and then dropped out. And we all know of those kinds of situations. But I want you to know that what Jesus is saying here is emphatically not that. This is hardly the do-nothing types that are being mentioned here. Friends, these folks are out here beating the bushes, as it were. Look at their complaint. Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? 
We, we've been the instruments of conveying your truth. Have we not, in your name, exercised demons? Have we not, in your name, done many one uh, Ephesus that uh, took upon themselves to cast this demon out of this fellow? And they said, uh, we assure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon replied, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are you? And jumped on them, stripped their clothes off, and they ran naked down the street. A rather humorous account there. But notice there we have an instance of these seven sons of this Jew by the name of Siva who are no more Christians than a man of moon, but are attempting to exercise demons in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, notice the prophetic nature of this statement. Jesus is saying, many will say this to me in that day. In that day. What day? What day are we talking about? Well, obviously, he's talking here about a day of judgment, isn't he? A day of reckoning. And then secondly, he's saying, many are going to be doing these things in my name. If I were to tell you that, you know, a thousand years after I'm gone, people will be doing things in the name of Mark Webb. Come on, give me a break. You understand what I'm saying? You, you think about who Jesus is at this point. I mean, he's this vagabond teacher walking around Galilee with this ragtag bunch of disciples. Nobody of any consequence is following him. Can you imagine somebody saying that at the judgment of the last day, people will be saying they've done these things and they've done these things in my name. Isn't that somewhat prophetic? And then the third element that is so prophetic here is that I will say to them, I didn't know you. He will be the judge in that last day. So these are rather amazing prophecies. Uh, you, you would expect, uh, who is this person that thinks that in the last day, what people have done in his name will be important, and he somehow will be the determiner of the true and false in that last day? But that's what he's saying. How prophetic. That here today, and you don't have to go far, turn on your TV to channel 30, and you'll see people doing all sorts of supposedly miraculous things in the name of Jesus Christ. All sorts of miraculous stuff going on, supposedly, in the name of Jesus Christ. But the truth of the matter is that this is not done in his name. It is not the will of his Father, no matter how determined they were that they were doing a marvelous, miraculous, wonderful thing. Jesus characterizes it as evil, as wicked. Depart from me, ye workers of what? Iniquity. It's nothing but deception. It's nothing but that which is false. You claimed that you were doing it in my name. But I know. And furthermore, I know who's who. Do you notice here the address? They called him Lord. No, that wasn't what they said. They called him Lord, Lord. Isn't that interesting? R.C. Sproul once pointed out that whenever you find in the Bible a name that's duplicated, you say the name twice, that wherever you find that in the Bible, you find a supposed intimate relationship between the two people, the fellow who's calling the other by this double name. Y'all get what I'm saying, do you? Do you remember back when I, Abraham took his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and he was about to slay him? And he raised the knife and the angel cried out of the bush, What? Abraham, Abraham. In other words, there is an intimate acquaintance between God and Abraham. When David was mourning over the loss of Absalom, his son, what was he saying? Oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. And spoke through the entire Bible showing how whenever someone uses someone's name twice, when you just don't say Mark, you say Mark, Mark, or Joe, Joe, or whatever. That every single case, there is a supposed intimate relationship between the two people. 
And then we see these people saying in that day, Lord, Lord. Not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. The idea that they thought they had such a relationship with Him. The last thing they could have imagined is that they would not have been included. This is not just their Lord, it's their Lord, Lord. And by the way, would you look elsewhere in the New Testament and you'll find the same thing. In Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, I think you know the story how they waited, the bridegroom was supposed to come, he delayed, and finally they all went to sleep, and then there was a cry made, the bridegroom's come. But these foolish virgins they had no oil in their lamps, and they had to go by. And while they were gone, look in Matthew 25, verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Never in their wildest imaginations. When they came to that feast, did it ever cross their mind that they wasn't going to be invited, that they wasn't going to be with inside that door? But Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. You claim to know me. You claim to know me in an intimate way, and I don't know you. Luke chapter 13. Luke 13. Very similar. Verse 25. Well, let's back up to verse 23. This is so much like what we covered last week. Luke 13, verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not from whence ye are. Do you see, the point here is that in each of these cases, when these are excluded, that was the last thing on their mind. They never dreamed that that would be the case. Oh, you have these ten virgins. Surely there were others that you would certainly not characterize as virgins, others who were not even there waiting, but of those who were expecting to be admitted, half of them were excluded. I told you these are not very pleasant things to preach, but they are warnings, lest we be one who says in that day, but Lord, Lord. I've often asked the question, I hear your profession, you profess to know him. What evidence do you have that he knows you? Because in that day, that will be the determination, not whether you say you know Him, but whether He says He knows you. And then finally, this matter of a false foundation. We know it well, I trust, if not from your study of Scripture, from your learning of that little song that you learned back there when you were in the nursery about the wise man build his house upon the rock and... No, that's deep and wide, isn't it? I'm sorry. No, this this one, yeah. Wise man built his house upon the rock, on the sand. To the outward eye, it appears to us that oftentimes people have it and then lose it. I mean, that's how it looks. People look to be true converts, true Christians, truly born again. And then down the road... They cast off all profession, fall by the wayside, fall into sin, want nothing to do with the things of God. And to us, it looks like they had it and they lost it. But if we really inquire as to where did they go wrong, 
And when we look at what Jesus is teaching in this little picture of the wise man and the foolish man, we see that they went wrong from the very beginning. The wise man always had a foundation. The foolish man never had a foundation. He didn't lose his foundation. He never had one. But it sure looked like he did. You would have thought, you know, driving down the street, I see a house here. I think it's got a foundation under there. I say, surely it's got a foundation. Surely they just didn't build that thing right there on the ground. Surely they put a foundation under there. Right? That's the assumption. But in this case, no, there never was a foundation. There was the appearance. There was the superstructure. There was the outward evidence. But there never was the inward reality. In fact, Luke's account of this same little story is very interesting because he says the man, the wise man, first digged deep and found a rock and built his house on it. I find that interesting that whereas the foolish man is just going up, the wise man first goes down before he goes up. The foolish man, if you'd have been standing there, seems like he's making a whole lot more progress. I mean, he's getting... You know, if you don't have to lay the foundation, you can build something pretty fast, can't you? The fellow who's having to dig and find something firm, solid, to build his house on, he doesn't make near as much progress. He seems to be going in the opposite direction at first. But in the long run... His is the one that will endure. May I have you notice that the storm, the same storm, the same rain that fell on the foolish man's house also fell on the wise man's house? In other words, don't you think that the difference between the true and the false is that good things are going to happen to one, bad things happen to the other? The same thing happened to both. It was not the external circumstances that revealed that one, you know, this wise man's house, it never rains over there, never has floodwaters. It's the fact that the same tribulations and trials that fell on one falls on the other, and the the same trial that reveals that one doesn't have a foundation reveals that the other one does. And that is why I tell you that how you act, how you deal in times of trial and tribulation is the surest testimony that you have. It's the surest evidence of where your hope and your trust and your faith is. Anybody, anybody can, you know, give all sorts of glowing testimonials when everything is going their way. When they got the world by the tail on a downhill pull. Anybody. It's when your world is falling apart. That's when we'll find out what you're made of what you're built on, whether there has just been this outward superstructure of Christianity or whether there has been a genuine founding on a rock, on something solid and substantial. And of course, this is sort of predicting what's going to come later in the New Testament, all the teachings surrounding Christ as the rock, as the cornerstone, as the foundation of both our life and of the church and of salvation. What are we built on? When Jesus got through, those people were amazed. They'd never heard anything like this. I don't blame them. Seemed like that was always the case when men came to hear Jesus. They came away shaking their heads. Never heard anything like this before. At one time, the Pharisees, priests, sent the soldiers to arrest Jesus. They came back empty-handed. They said, where is he? And they said, never a man spake like this man. You see, there's something about what has just been delivered in this Sermon on the Mount that has the ring of truth about it, the ring of authenticity. If you didn't know nothing about nothing, if you think an epistle is the wife of an apostle, if that's the depth of your theological understanding... Now, you don't know nothing about nothing. You know, it all looks like Greek to you. When you read this, my friend, a child recognizes the truth that is contained in this message, in this sermon. It doesn't take great depth, great understanding. This is one of those things that, yes, if God became man and lived among us and taught us, this is what we would expect to hear. 
It just has that ring of truth about it. And the Christian, his ear perks up because he hears the voice of Christ in this message. Yes, this is what I would expect God to say if God came down and dwelt among us. I'd expect him to say I ought to be holy. Wouldn't you expect that? Would you expect God, holy, beyond conception, to come into this world and teach you that it's okay to sin a little? Would you expect that? Or would you expect Him to come into this world and say, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven? That's what I expect to hear. I would expect Him to hear, be ye perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you expect, if God became flesh and dwelt among us, that He could say, now you can just go to church and do your little liturgy, you can read your words and say your things and say your prayers, and then go out and live as you please? Is that what you'd expect Him to say? Or would you expect that God, who is spirit, if He becomes flesh, incarnate, in human form, that the words you would hear out of His mouth is, don't do what you do to be seen of man. Your Father who is in secret sees in secret and reward you openly. And when you pray, don't pray like the heathen who mock the character of God by their very praying. Pray like this. And on and on we go. This is just what you would expect. God to say. It has that ring of truth about it. The scribes and the Pharisees, they taught by quoting old Rabbi Ben Halani, you know, so-and-so from the past. We know this is true because old Rabbi so-and-so. And here comes Jesus saying, this is true, but I say unto you. I don't care who said what, who it was that said it, when they said it, how long ago they said it, I say unto you, this is the way it is. That's what you'd expect of God. As old Gene Breed says, Nicodemus had a problem. He thought Jesus was a teacher come from God when it was really God come to teach. There's a difference, isn't it? I don't know how you can read these words and think obedience is optional. I mean, did you notice through all of this? He that heareth my words and doeth them is like this man that built his house on a rock. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. I don't know how you can understand this to be optional. And by the way, this whole problem that this obedience so wrapped up in this sermon has led many to say, well, this is really for the Old Testament age, or it's really just for the Jew and not for you and me. You know, this thing of the kingdom that Christ is preaching, that's really not our concern. It's for the Jews, not for us. Well, I'd say if that's true, then rebirth, the new birth is for them and not us. Because Jesus said, unless you be born again, you'll not see the kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the same thing. This is Christianity. This is the kingdom of Christ, the salvation of man. It's found in this kingdom. And it is understood that we are to bend the knee and bow the knee to Christ as our King. I am not telling you that by doing these things, you're going to get in the kingdom. I'm not telling you that by doing these things, you're going to work your way to heaven. I'm telling you there's only one way to get to heaven. And that's through trusting in Christ and trusting in what He's done. But I am telling you this, that the faith that saves your soul is not a dead, empty faith, a mere outward, hollow profession. The faith that saves the soul is a living faith, a working faith, a faith that reveals itself and shows what it believes by the way we live and conduct our lives in this world. It's a faith that has evidence. And the evidences will give us away. One way or the other. Can I leave you with this? For David comes. As we turn our attention to one thing, by the way, the Lord did say, do. Did he not? Do this in remembrance of me. But may I leave you with this one thought, also from the Gospel of Luke. Why call ye me again, Lord Lord, and do not the things that I say. Let's pray. Help us to be honest with your word, Father, to see that you didn't come 
to merely justify us and to put us in heaven as rebels, still rebelling, still desiring our own evil way. But Father, you came to truly convert us inside and out, justifying us, forgiving our sins in the name of Jesus on the basis of his shed blood and what he did for us at Calvary's cross. And Father, on that ground, to begin a work, a sanctifying work within us, to make us into the image of your own beloved Son, to make us more and more like Jesus, to follow in his steps, to heed his word, to obey his commandments. Lord, may we be serious about this matter. Father, I do not want to in any way shake the true assurance, genuine assurance of any true believer that's here today. May nothing that has been said cause anyone to doubt or to question the genuineness of their profession, the reality of their life in Christ, if they are indeed yours. But Lord, may everything that has been said today serve to strip and take away that which is false. Holding on to what is not real and not what is not true. May you absolutely demolish the false assurance of anyone who's here present today. Lord, if we're deceived, don't leave us there. Make us to know it. Take the wool out from over our eyes. May we see of a truth, whether we are in Christ, whether we're truly His. And may we not be found among that crowd in that day that simply says, Lord, Lord. Thinking that all was well with their soul, when they knew nothing of the Christ of the gospel. Lord, we come today, we who profess your name, we who make that profession that you are indeed our Lord and our Master, our Savior, our King, our Prophet, our Priest. We profess you are that. And Lord, in obedience to your command, we come and we remember your death. We remember the rock, the foundation of our soul's salvation. Help us. Help us to make a true profession. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.